the Explorers. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm your host, Kate Armstrong. If you haven't yet listened to episode two on lady nurses, I'd suggest you go back and do that now. It'll really make you appreciate what Clara had to deal with. If you're American, then you've probably heard of Clara Barton. You'll have learned that she was a Civil War nurse for sure, and that she's responsible for the American Red Cross. But did you know that she was also a well-loved teacher who founded a school for wayward boys? How about the fact that she publicly chastised a crowd full of veterans for not being nice to suffragists and got away with it? Did you know that she was one of the first women to work in a government office and that she's largely responsible for the first aid kit in your car? This outrageously industrious woman had several careers, impacted thousands of lives, and influenced the shape of the world's approach to relief aid. She lived a big, full, and sweat-inducingly adventurous life. But here's the thing that bothers me about how we talk about women in history. So often they're cast in one of two roles, angel or harlot, saintly Joan of Arc or Medusa. But no woman is really either of those things, is she? After all, as Clara's fellow Civil War nurse Walt Whitman once wrote, we are large, we contain multitudes. Don't get me wrong, Clara earned her title as the angel of the battlefield. But I want to peel back the label and try to discover the woman behind it. The flesh-and-blood lady who was incredibly brave on the battlefield, but terrified of public speaking. Who didn't wait for anyone's permission, but who cared a lot about what other people thought. She was confident, but insecure. So sure of her path, but often completely lost. Because these multitudes don't diminish what this dynamo achieved. They make it that much more real and amazing. In this episode, let's explore the life of this hardworking, extremely ambitious character. Grab a ruler, some bandages, and your traveling camp bed. Let's go traveling. Clarissa Harlow Barton was born in Oxford, Massachusetts on Christmas Day, 1821. She was the fifth and last child of the family, and the youngest of the bunch by about a decade. So while Clara, who they often called Baby, grew up surrounded by loving siblings, they often felt more like parents, and she often felt like an only child. But being Baby came with advantages. She was everybody's pet project. Each family member took it upon themselves to educate her in some way, often in things that would come in handy later in life. Her dad, Stephen Barton, had married young Sarah Stone back in 1821. Rather hastily, I might add, as their first son was born only five months later. Whoops! The Bartons and Stones had long been a part of this rural New England community, one full of churches, clapboard houses, farms, and mills. Now a well-respected, firmly middle-class farmer, Stephen was considered a man of sound judgment and stately bearing. But as a young man, he joined up with the military, going off to fight in the so-called Indian War out on the Ohio frontier. I listened breathlessly to his war stories, she said. 
Illustrations were called for, and we made battles and fought them. Clara absolutely adored her dad. They used to set up mock battles and talk about politics. Not the most mainstream of occupations for a girl of this era. But each member of the family were her teachers, in one way or another, and Clara was quick and eager to learn. She said she didn't remember a time when she wasn't able to read. Her older sisters taught her writing, art, literature, and geography. Her brother Stephen disliked school so much as a young buck that, at 12, he still couldn't read. But this late bloomer went on to teach himself math, which he then became ace at. So when he wasn't busy working at his mill, that's what he taught her. Stephen and her other brother David, dashing adventurer and all-around wild child, also taught her other unseemly things for a lady. For example, they taught her how to throw a ball, to hammer a nail into a board, and tie good knots. David was also a very dedicated lover of horses. So when Clara was five, he took her out into the fields with some young colts and popped her up on one, you know, no saddle, as you do, and they rode off at top speed into the sunset. Yikes! Clara would become an amazing horsewoman who would often awe and somewhat shock those around her by riding astride instead of side saddle. Oh my! Her busy and industrious mother taught her the domestic arts that every woman had to learn. Cleaning, sewing, cooking, etc., This sounds less glamorous than bareback horseback riding, to be sure, but these skills were some of the ones that she was most grateful for later. She actually credited her mom for the fact that, even out on a battlefield, she could bake a perfect pie with crinkly edges. Hopefully not right after having helped with an amputation. But this rosy portrait doesn't tell the whole story. Where her dad was calm, her mom was full of nervous energy— and a weird habit of letting vegetables and pies go half bad before she'd let anyone eat them. Right. She was tough to impress and quick to anger. Once, she pulled apart a new cook stove and threw it into the pond because she didn't like the way it heated. So this house was not without its parental fights and rages. And then there was her eldest sister, Dolly, intense and smart and very troubled. When Clara was six, she suffered some kind of mental breakdown. She fly into wild rages. Once, she almost killed someone with an axe. So, there was that. Her family was full of big, driven, intense, and erratic personalities. Picture yourself at a raucous family dinner, surrounded by loud voices fighting viciously over that basket of bread rolls. You have two choices— Rise to meet the madness or shrink back against the wall? Young Clara took the second option. She grew incredibly shy, retreating ever further inward, extremely sensitive to any critique or joke. She wanted attention and praise from her family, desperately. She wanted to be able to hold her own, but she felt outmatched by her much older siblings. And as the youngest, she got teased a lot which seemed to give her a debilitating fear of being wrong. Take this comment, which she wrote about her childhood. In the earlier years of my life, I remember nothing but fear. She also lived in fear of being a burden. The fact that her mom sometimes seemed to find her one probably didn't help. She found it overwhelming to ask for anything, even small things. Her mother was mystified by how, 
Instead of just saying she needed a new dress, she'd burst into tears and run to her room. Understanding of a sensitive nature, her mother was not. Plus, as anyone from a large family will attest, Clara often felt lost in the shuffle. In this family of busy, ambitious people, she'd either get intense attention, critical and pointed, making her a canvas to paint their own ambitions on, or none at all. So Clara grew up with an intense desire for both attention and approval. She'll find it soon enough by being an A-plus student. At age four, she was sent to school. This was not a preschool of the 21st century, with naps and snack time and finger painting. Country schools usually featured one schoolroom, one teacher, and some 40 students of all different ages. She was by far the youngest kid there, and shockingly timid. But that didn't mean she wasn't super keen to do well. After dutifully spelling out words like dog and cat, she got bored, looked down at her speller at the most advanced section, and told her teacher, I read an artichoke. To say she was an accelerated learner is putting it mildly. And wouldn't you know it, doing well at school won her the praise she was looking for, so she threw herself into it. When she came into possession of a children's atlas, she insisted on waking her sister up every morning to help her find mountains, rivers, and capitals. Which is kind of cute, as long as that sister had her morning coffee first. But shyness continued to be a roadblock for Clara. We're talking painfully, cringingly, if you laugh at me, I will throw up and die kinds of shy. Her teachers tended to love her. They gave her all sorts of extra lessons in things like astronomy and poetry, far beyond what the rest of the class was learning. But she was one of those kids who'd rather eat lunch with her teacher than face the cafeteria and kids her own age. It can't have helped that she was always straining at the edge of her seat, waving her hand around, and struggling with a slight lisp. Once, Clara gave the answer to the teacher's question about Egyptian kings as follows. Potlamy! The older kids started giggling when the teacher told her that it was actually Ptolemy. She burst into tears and left the room. Drama! For a woman who would become a teacher, a battlefield nurse, and a lecturer to thousands, this whole side of her young self is so interesting to me. To this day, she wrote later, I would rather stand behind the lines of artillery at Antietam or cross the pontoon bridge under fire at Fredericksburg than to be expected to preside at a public meeting. But luck swept in around age eight, when the family moved onto a bigger farm after their uncle Jeremiah Learned died. Clara found herself left to run wild with her many cousins, which drastically improved her social skills. They explored caves, rode horses, ran across logs in the mill stream. That's some dangerous business. But even then, she was still looking for the approval of adults. When a painter came by the house to do some work, she asked if she could be his apprentice. So he taught her how to paint, to prepare oils, and make putty. Think of yourself at age eight. How many minutes would it take before you got bored with this game? But Clara was a diligent worker. She even varnished the dining room chairs. Can you varnish chairs? I'm not sure I can. Her Puritan-blooded father was not a fan of dancing, singing, or general wildness in his family circle, so she was forbidden to do any of those things. But one Sunday, a bunch of kids convinced her to sneak out and go skating. To teach her how, 
her cousins helpfully tied scarves around her waist and pulled her along, which inevitably ended in two bloody knees and many tears, also a pronounced limp. She was so afraid of her parents' disapproval that she did what she'll often do in later life, hid her ailments. It took several days for her parents to discover the extent of her injuries, which says something about Clara's strength or something about her parents' negligence. You be the judge. As she got a bit older, her parents realized that maybe they hadn't been paying enough attention. Clara was clearly getting a little too, you know, tomboyish for her own good. Her mother worried she wasn't learning how to be a proper lady. So she started pushing her to make girlfriends in the neighborhood and hosted little tea parties. Quite rightly, Clara was confused. She got praise before for being strong and smart and capable of varnishing chairs. And now she's getting censured for those things? And so she ran into the Victorian tomboy conundrum. What was cute when she was little became improper when she was a teen. And there was real danger in her predicament. If you don't fit into the female mold society has cast for you, then you risk being an outcast. Fit in, and you'll be forced into a kind of life you may not want. This is a problem that many of the women we'll meet this season will have to deal with. When Clara was 11, tragedy struck. Her brother David, ever the wild man, went to a barn raising, and he fell hard. The doctor prescribed cupping and leeches, which helped turn his general aches and pains into an illness so bad he couldn't get out of bed for two years. Clara was his nurse for the duration, dedicating herself completely to his care. The family watched as Clara bravely applied his writhing leeches, which she thought looked a whole lot like snakes. He didn't get well again until after a regime of many steam baths. Who knew you could steam yourself back to wellness? It probably helped that all that steaming also came with rest, great food, and a break from the leeches. Clara loved being a nurse. She was good at it, and it gave her purpose. But taking care of Stephen took a toll on her, too. At age 12, she actually stopped growing. Clara was always very good at taking care of others, but often not so good at taking care of herself. As a teen, Clara continued taking care of other people, nursing the poor, volunteering, and doing some work at her brother's mill. But her shyness and extreme sensitivity were still debilitating. Her parents were perplexed. What to do with her? Luckily, they had an interesting house guest. Mr. L. N. Fowler was an expert in phrenology. That's the popular 19th century art of feeling head lumps to determine someone's strengths and weaknesses. It seems a little silly now, but this practice was cutting edge for its time. And in some ways, it signaled the beginnings of the practice of psychology. It helped spawn terms we still use, like highbrow, lowbrow, and well-rounded. And it was generally pretty friendly to women's rights, too, as it acknowledged that women had the same potential for mental acuity as men. Well, except for the phrenologists who said it proved that women were made for things like morality, kindness, and religiosity. But maybe not for college. Anyway. Upon feeling Clara's lovely lady lumps, what he had to say turned out to be uncannily foreshadowing. 
The sensitive nature will always remain. She will never assert herself for herself. She will suffer wrong first, but for others she will be perfectly fearless. Throw responsibility upon her. So it was decided, to her great horror, that she should become a teacher. At 17, she took charge of her first classroom in a local school. That classroom included 40 students, ranging from age 4 to 13. Please imagine, for a moment, the potential madness of a classroom full of 40 kids, all of wildly different ages, for a new teacher with no training, who's about 5 feet tall and barely older than some of the students she's supposed to be teaching. I've been a high school teacher, and unlike Clara, I'm a bit of a show pony. And this scenario makes me want to hide and maybe cry. She was so scared on her first day, she couldn't even speak. So she got them to read a passage out of the Bible instead, and asked them to tell her what they thought it meant. The younger kids seemed okay, but those four big boys with their arms crossed in the back? They were trouble. They'd bodily thrown their last teacher out of the schoolroom and locked the door behind her. So how's this for some bravery? When they started playing some rough game during one of their breaks, she joined in. When they found that I was as agile and as strong as themselves, that my throw was as sure and as straight as theirs, and that if they won a game it was because I permitted it, their respect knew no bounds. The boys thought this was the best thing ever, and by the end of the term, Clara was a huge success. Her classroom was so well-behaved that she got an award for discipline, which she objected to. She hadn't had to discipline anybody, thank you kindly. And then someone explained the award to her, and she was like, oh, cool, 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 cool. For more than a decade, she was constantly in high demand. Neighboring towns begged her to come and bring some good old discipline to their trouble schools, though she never found them all that troubled. Well, except for one time, when a boy was so bad she had to break out her riding whip, crack it once or twice, and then trip him with it. But don't worry, the class got a nice picnic afterward. She even founded a school for workers' children at her brother's mill. She was so well thought of, and knew enough of her worth, that she declined one teaching job when they refused to pay her as much as the male teacher had gotten before her. I may sometimes be willing to teach for nothing, but if paid at all, I shall never do a man's work for less than a man's pay. Yeah, girl! She dedicated herself to teaching, and she loved watching her students grow. She did the things I've always loved in my favorite teachers. She set the bar high and insisted they had what it took to meet it. But she found these teaching years exhausting, and there was no chance for further study, for advancement. Clara yearned for something more. So at 29, she left Massachusetts and went to the Liberal Institute in Clinton, New York. This was one of maybe three colleges that accepted women, just by the way. Being a mature-age student, she didn't exactly hit it off with the rest of the student population. So, once again, she was that kid who mostly talked to the teachers, kept to herself, and studied too hard. Like, way too hard. Clara was not going to parties or watching Netflix. 
She kept going back to the teachers to ask for more work, taking on pretty much every course available. One of those teachers, Louise Barker, was so concerned about her bookishness that she hatched many schemes to lure Clara out of the library. But yes, since you're wondering, Clara did have gentlemen callers throughout her 20s. And by that, I mean men who wrote her letters and took her on occasional horseback rides. This is the 19th century. There were a few she'd known back in Oxford, including cousin Jerry Learned. You know, first cousins, whatever. There was a math professor, Samuel Ramsey, who Louise Barker used as a part of her schemes to get Clara a social life. Another guy courted her, and when that failed, he went out to the gold fields in the West and sent her back $10,000 of his riches. Their correspondence about it can be summed up like this. Well, this is awkward. I'm not into you like that, so maybe take this money back? (sighs) I'm sad. But you know, just keep it. Remember me. She had esteem for these suitors, to be sure, but she couldn't commit to any. As one old friend said, Clara was herself so much stronger a character than any of the men who made love to her that I do not think she was ever seriously tempted to marry any of them. If she found someone with a bigger personality than hers, someone who could match or even outdo her, then maybe she'd think about it. But then again, if she did, I think she knew that being a wife wouldn't satisfy her grand ambitions. So, your classic catch-22 dating situation. And so, in a time when marriage was considered a woman's highest calling, and the most certain way to her financial security, Clara stayed single. Clara, who was not independently wealthy, not even close. A pretty brave move in this era. Despite appearing cheerful and calm and gallivanting on horseback, Clara wasn't having an easy time of it. Her brother Stephen was embroiled in an embarrassing legal suit in which he was implicated in a bank robbery. Her mother was ill, and then she died suddenly, and Clara didn't have enough time to get home for her funeral. Despite many letters home, she felt lonely, plagued with self-doubt and depressed thoughts. Some of these thoughts, it seems, had to do with her year of school ending and the uncertainty of what she was going to do next. Clara was always happiest when she was working herself into the ground for a cause she believed in, and unhappy when she felt idle and without a clear purpose. So, school ends. What to do? She didn't want to go back to teaching in Oxford— that would be a step backward. So instead, she went to visit a good friend in Bordentown, New Jersey. During her walks through the streets, she started noticing wild, dirty boys. A lot of them. The boys! I found them on all sides of me. Every street corner had little knots of them, idle, listless, as if to say, what shall one do when one has nothing to do? They would be happy to go to school, they told her but there wasn't a public one for them to attend. So, in very Clara fashion, she turned her vacation into a work opportunity. She went to the chairman of the school committee and told him that she wanted to open a school for these boys. He was nice enough, but essentially canned the idea. His lists of objections were as follows. 1. These boys are more fit for the prison than the schoolroom. 2. 
Their parents won't like your free school charity. It'll insult them. Three, the community and other teachers will shun you. They don't know you. Four, a strong local man teacher couldn't do this. And well, you're a woman. She told them, thanks kindly, but I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. I'll use my own money, don't worry. But I'd like your blessing all the same. They reluctantly gave it, found her a run-down brick building, fixed it up a bit, and left her to it. On her first day, she found just six boys sitting on the fence, looking like a bunch of birds who would fly away at any moment. She pointed out plants and birds to them, all casual, stay or go, no big deal, whatever. They followed her into the classroom, though, where they started asking questions about the big map on the wall. It turned out that they were bored with all of their idle riffraffing. They wanted to learn. By day two, she had 20 students, and by the end of the week, she had 40. Word spread, and before long, the school swelled to 600 boys, and eventually, even some girls. She had to turn them away crying, there were so many. But the committee told her that they were worried about her safety. These kids were criminals, after all. So Clara put the case to the classroom, in a way the teacher in me loves so very much. Now, boys, you see the reputation you beat among the best people of the town. You must either remain as you are, or redeem yourselves. And so they did. She hired more teachers, and the shocked committee built her a new building. The project was a success, and it was entirely her own. Satisfied with how things were going, she went home for a summer break. And what did she find upon her return? That the town had hired a new male principal. But don't worry, they told her. You can stay on and be his assistant, okay? We'll still pay you a salary. Less than half as much as his, but that's cool, right? She did stay on for a bit, but Clara was not down with this development. After building up this school from nothing, she didn't need anyone to give me directions and tell me what I shall and shall not do. Especially directions from the critter, as she called the new guy, who didn't like any of her ideas and was generally kind of a boob. The faculty frayed, tensions grew, Clara's voice gave out. She was ill, stressed, and completely exhausted. So at 32, she left the classroom, not knowing she would never teach again. But what else is an unmarried girl to do with her time? If she wasn't going to teach, there weren't many options open to her. Nannying, domestic work, factory work, or marriage. All thumbs down. But a friend was moving to Washington, so she decided to go too, because why not? At first, she just wanted to read and chill. But we already know that Clara is terrible at chilling, and anyway, she needed money. So she went to her local congressman, Colonel Alexander DeWitt, and was like, hey, could you kindly find me a job? You know, as you do. And thus, in 1854, Clara Barton became one of the first female clerks in the U.S. Patent Office. This is a time well before touchscreens, remember? So she was copying out patent applications by hand, with one of those fountain pens that you actually have to dip into a pot full of ink. 
Charles Mason, the commissioner of patents, and generally a pretty woke gentleman, appreciated her excellent, easy-to-read handwriting. He also enjoyed her excellent conversation, keen political mind, and discretion when it came to confidential papers. So he offered to pay her $1,400 a year, the same salary as the male clerks working around her. This at a time when there were less than 600 women in the entire country working in a clerical position, and most working women were making less than $200 a year. And Clara liked the work. At that time, the patent office was part office, part museum, full of interesting artifacts, bright ideas, and inventive people. The city, too, was growing on her. It was a little wild and stinky, but it was full of intellectuals, people who were, you know, as nerdy as she was. She attended small parties called levies and made frequent visits to the Senate to sit in the gallery and hear politicians speak. She was busy, felt useful, and was being praised for her work, the Clara Barton trifecta of happiness. But her job was far from stable. Such appointments were often temporary and depended a lot on who was in charge and what your politics were. Plus, she was a woman in a male-dominated world. Many of her co-workers did not enjoy the presence of a woman in their midst who was being paid as much as they were. Take Secretary of the Interior Robert McClellan. When Charles Mason left to go back to Iowa, McClellan immediately demoted Clara to copyist, earning 10 cents per every 100 words she copied. You try writing a thousand words by hand. Go ahead, time yourself. How long did it take you to earn one dollar? Even a workaholic like Clara could only earn $900 a year this way. A big pay cut. And that's only when she was given work to do. Some months, she wasn't given any. Then Mason came back to the patent office, and she became a bit of an office mole. This is where we see some of Clara's very best, and, to me, most challenging qualities. She was so smart, so driven, so ready to help and be useful. But she was also your classic know-it-all. She liked to show people up. The door that nobody else will go in at seems always to swing open widely for me. And at this time, she was being a bit of a tattletale, for better or for worse. Her co-workers could not believe a woman was trying to get them fired, and they tried to make her as uncomfortable as possible. They spit tobacco juice on her dress, blew smoke in her face, and made up stories about how many men she was sleeping with. Because, of course... Harlot. Gross. She persevered, but the job had lost its shine. Meanwhile, tensions in Washington were high over whether or not slavery should be allowed to expand into newly admitted states. In 1856, she went to see politician Charles Sumner give a blazing speech about the spread of slavery. It was so incendiary that, the next day, Congressman Pierce Butler almost beat Sumner to death on the Senate floor. Yikes, Butler! It was amidst this tense climate that the administration changed and she found herself out of a job. She went home for a while, painted, took French lessons, and burned through her savings trying to help out wayward family members. But she felt frustrated and lost. And for anyone who's been forced to move back home as an adult and live with your parents, you know this is not a great situation when it comes to confidence. Hers plummeted. 
Imagine, she's staring out her childhood window, wondering if this is it for her. So it was with some relief that Abe Lincoln was voted in as president in 1860, and she got her job back. When she arrived in Washington, she found it buzzing with war talk. Everyone was talking about how South Carolina had seceded from the Union, and whether there was going to be a war. She thought the extremists on both sides were being too hasty. Slavery should be gotten rid of slowly, over time. Not all at once, like the abolitionists wanted. Better for everyone to calm down and just work together. It must be noted that she wasn't a blazing abolitionist. At least, not yet. And she was in the majority in her beliefs. But like it or not, war was coming. On April 14, 1861, Fort Sumter was attacked. On April 15th, Lincoln put out a call for 75,000 volunteer troops to come to Washington. Some troops from New England were attacked by a Confederate mob, making them the first casualties of the war. The government was not at all prepared to deal with soldiers, wounded or otherwise. They had no barracks or army hospitals, so they ended up putting the soldiers up in places like the Senate chambers. Clara went to see if there was something she could do for them. What did she find but a whole bunch of her former students? It really moved her to see them confused and anxious to know what was happening. They only had one Worcester newspaper among them, so they asked Clara, who would rather be shot at than speak in public, to stand on the podium and read it, which, of course, she did. This was a life-changing moment for Clara. These boys, her boys, had almost nothing. No beds, no changes of clothes, not enough rations. If the Union was this ill-equipped now, before the fighting had even really started, what would happen to the boys out on the battlefield? Over the next few months, Clara spent a lot of time with her old students in their makeshift, dirty, disease-ridden camp. Some of them must have written home about her, as she started receiving supplies from their families through the mail. She got so many packages that she had to move into a warehouse-like apartment, but she was happy to be distributing supplies where they were needed. It was something she could do to help. And then she watched, horrified, as soldiers staggered back into Washington during what was called the Great Skedaddle, which happened after the Union's defeat at the First Battle of Bull Run. Some of the wounded lay in the field for days before anyone found them. Those that got back had to wait a long time for any medical attention. She helped nurse one guy who'd been sick with fever for six weeks with no one tending to him. His sister had to ride out to the camp and nurse him herself. His skin was falling off and he was starving, literally. So she started actively writing her friends back home begging them to send supplies. It is said that the army is supplied, but in the event of a battle, who can tell what their necessities might grow to in a single day? It became clear to Clara that these soldiers needed a middle woman, someone to stand between the front and the hospital, the bullet and the surgeon. From the minute they were injured or got sick, they were a ticking time bomb. The army did not have it handled. But they also did not want women at the front. It was one thing for women to nurse in city hospitals now and then. But to go out to a battlefield and attend to strange men in dirty tents without supervision? 
I cannot stress enough, in the beginning, this was seen as outrageously unseemly. And so Clara, quite rightly, was nervous about it. I struggled long and hard with my sense of propriety, with the appalling fact that I was only a woman whispering in one ear and thundering in the other the groans of suffering men dying like dogs. But the front was where she was determined to go. I said that I struggled with my sense of propriety. I'm ashamed that I thought of such a thing. She decided to leave her position at the patent office to dedicate herself to her new distribution agency. But they still held her job and paid her a partial salary for the duration. A woman working in a government agency and granted paid leave. Damn, was that ever an exception to the rule. But you couldn't just swan on over to the battlefields. You had to get passes or else you couldn't get past the picket lines. She pressed her connections and her friends and got nothing. She wrote strangers and got nothing. And then she found out that her father was dying. She went to his bedside, telling him all about her plans and fears. It was her ex-soldier father who convinced her to go out to the front. He'd been a soldier. He knew their minds. And he said that he knew that they would respect her. When he died, she still didn't have any passes, but she knew her course. This conflict is one thing I've been waiting for. I'm well and strong and young, young enough to go to the front. If I can't be a soldier, I'll help soldiers. So she went to see a Colonel Rucker, who was the quartermaster. When he asked her what she wanted, she burst into tears. And, like it or not, that approach worked for Clara. He gave her passes and ordered her wagons, and she became the first woman to be officially given that blessing. In August 1862... She loaded up her wagon with a couple of ladies and headed for the front. She arrived four days after the battle, at a depot where they were laying out wounded to wait for the next train to Washington. She watched as wagons dumped load after load onto fields laid with straw, like they were barn animals. Their bodies packed together so tightly that she was terrified she'd step on one. She'd thought she was prepared for this, but she wasn't. The army was already out of everything. Bandages, shirts, clean water, you name it. And all she brought with her was two water buckets, five tin cups, one camp kettle, one stew pan, two lanterns, four bread knives, three plates, and a two-quart tin dish. Clara and her ladies were... A little band of almost empty-handed workers, literally by ourselves, and the wild woods of Virginia with 3,000 suffering men crowded upon the few acres within our reach. Those 3,000 men were thirsty, hurting, starving. It wasn't just that they didn't have any water. It's that they didn't even have cups to drink water with. This was life and death playing out before her eyes. So they got to work, handing out tea putting socks on wet feet, and covering bodies with blankets. For many soldiers, this was the first attention they'd gotten after the battle. Some of them cried when she knelt down next to them. I never realized until that day how little a human being could be grateful for, she said. The bit of bread which would rest on the surface of a gold eagle was worth more than the coin itself. Several battles happened in quick succession in these months of 1862, Cedar Mountain, the Second Battle of Bull Run, Chantilly, Fredericksburg, 
and others. Clara Barton was at them all and had to harden up very quickly to attend to the soldiers she called her boys. In our last episode, we discussed the horror of Civil War wounds. Now imagine seeing them fresh, just after a battle. Imagine that these boys are students of yours. Because that's literally what happened to Clara. After the Battle of Chantilly, she bent down over a pale boy with a mangled arm to ask what she could do for him. To her surprise, he threw his one good arm around her and started sobbing. And do you know me? she asked him, kind of shocked. He sobbed that he was Charlie Hamilton, who used to carry her satchel home from school. The thought of having one of my old students sobbing on my shoulder with a missing arm is, well, it's a little much for me. Sometimes the greatest, and hardest, gift she could give was her emotional strength. To stand in for the mothers, sisters, and wives that dying soldiers desperately wished they could see. One day, a surgeon came to get her. He said there was a boy who was dying, mortally wounded in the stomach, who wouldn't stop asking for his sister Mary. Would she please go and see if she could calm him down? So she went and found him screaming, Mary! Don't let me die alone. And so she shooed all the doctors away, turned the lamp down low, and pretended to be Mary. He threw his arms around her neck and cried into her hair. I knew you'd come. I have called you so long. He was only supposed to last an hour, but when morning came, he was still alive, and he thanked Clara. He knew he was dying, and begged her to make sure he got put on the train for those who might survive. She said she couldn't make them put him on. Those trains were for those who might survive, and he wouldn't. But he was his mother's only son, he said, and had promised her that he would make it home, dead or alive. So Clara fought to have him put on the train. Many days later, she found him again at a Washington hospital. He'd lived long enough to reunite with his mother and sister, who held his hand before he died. That's what Clara had to deal with. Not once, but again and again. And it's not like being a field nurse was a day job. She wasn't working hard all day, then retiring to some nice little cottage at night. She even ordered herself a camp bed, which was basically a traveling trunk that would fold out in three pieces to form a sleeping pallet, kind of like an Ikea futon, and probably just as comfortable. She often slept in the field, in muddy tents and on straw pallets, and ate what the rest of the soldiers ate. This woman would never, ever, ask for anything to ease her pain or give her comfort. She'd rather chatter all night in freezing rain than ask anyone for a blanket. As 1862 rolled on, she developed a system. Find out where a battle was happening, go out to the front, come back to Washington, sleep for a day, repeat. She got a lot more efficient at predicting where a battle would happen. It probably helped that she had friends in the government, and that the army officers were getting more and more grateful to see her heading out into the field. She discovered that, if she got caught behind the army's long train of supplies and wagons, she'd get to the battle way too late to be of any use. So she picked up a new mantra, follow the cannon. If she followed the cannons instead of the supply train, she'd be there when the action happened. The consequence of her new mantra is that she was at the front, on the battlefield, for some of the war's bloodiest fights. 
And unlike some nurses, she treated soldiers no matter which side of the war they fought for, which was a somewhat novel idea. But even as she got more famous, there were people who thought her whole enterprise was pretty unseemly. It wasn't proper for a woman to go out into the field, surrounded by men. It wasn't womanly. A woman with less conviction might have buckled. But Clara responded, If you chance to feel that the positions I occupied were rough and unseemly for a woman, I can only reply that they were rough and unseemly for men. This has always been my issue with women and the military. How can we send men into the firing line if women aren't also willing and allowed to do it? And yet many of us are still uncomfortable with the notion of women foot soldiers. So imagine Clara making the statement way back in the 1860s. There were other women who went out to the battlefield, but not that many. Often, she was one of the only ones to be seen. Like at the Battle of Antietam, where 7,280 Union men were killed. And that's just during the course of one morning. 40,000 soldiers died in total. Imagine that. Thousands of guys in a ruined cornfield, all screaming for your attention. It's at battles like these that she really earned her nickname, the Angel of the Battlefield. She showed up with chloroform and bandages just when it seemed like surgeons were going to have to start wrapping wounds in corn leaves. When a surgeon had just two inches of candle left to operate by, she came in with scores of lanterns. To the people she rescued, it seemed like she was everywhere. But even angels bleed. At Antietam, she bent down to give a soldier some water. As she helped him up, a bullet passed through her sleeve and right into him. He fell dead right in front of her. All she could think to do was get up and move on. Another time, she found a soldier groaning in pain. He had a bullet buried in his right cheek, and the surgeons were busy. Couldn't she just get a knife and dig it out for him? Mind you, she didn't have any official doctor training. But he really, really wanted her to do it, so she just went on ahead. I do not think a surgeon would have pronounced it a scientific operation. But that it was successful, I dared to hope from the gratitude of the patient. At the Battle of Fredericksburg, Clara saw the most intense fighting of her nursing career. As the Union loitered, trying to finish building a pontoon bridge to cross the river on, the Confederate Army took up posts in every city window. So when the Union troops started trying to come over, they picked them off one by one. Thousands of them. She was either insane or much braver than I am. Because when a surgeon wrote her a note begging her to come into the town, she did it. She crossed over the river in a boat, with sniper shot pinging off the water around her. Guys were shot right in front of her. A rider, who saw her and assumed she was a civilian, was incredibly shocked by her unseemly presence. You are alone and in great danger, madam, he said, all gallant-like. Do you want protection? She replied that she believed herself the best protected woman in the country. But this battle was really gruesome. She spent most of it in an old plantation called the Lacey House, which was so full of wounded and dying that they were lying under tables, on stairs, leaning up in corners in pantries. 
The steps of the mansion hosted a pile of amputated limbs. She often had to stoop down and wring blood out of the hem of her dress. Let me repeat, wring blood out of her dress and keep on going. I'd like to emphasize again that she wasn't a trained nurse. She wasn't technically in the military at all. She was just a civilian woman trying to lend a hand, surrounded by bullets and by the dying. So it's no surprise that after Fredericksburg, after five months of near-constant nursing, she went back to Washington in a bit of a daze. She looked in her mirror and found herself... Shoeless, gloveless, ragged, and bloodstained, with a new sense of desolation and pity and sympathy and weariness all blended, swept over me with irresistible force, and perfectly overpowered, I sank down and wept as I had never done. She let out all of the tears, all the despair, that she couldn't let herself feel in front of the soldiers. When she finally got herself together, she opened up a mysterious box that had been delivered for her. She assumed it would be filled with supplies for the boys, but they were for her. Dresses, handkerchiefs, linens, collars. It overwhelmed her so much that she sobbed all over again. In 1863, she decided to go further afield, down south to South Carolina. She was pretty famous by this point. She could go where she wanted. Men even saluted her when she went by. But this wasn't that busy a time for her, comparatively speaking, and she guiltily enjoyed daily rides with the many officers wanting the privilege of her time and attention. One of these was a certain Colonel Elwell. They rode horses, shared books, and talked late into the evening. Maybe very late into the evening. In his notes to her, in which he called her Birdie, he'd beg her to come and visit his room. I cannot forget the expression on your face while we were talking. It was the expression of happiness, the deepest happiness, not the evanescent flash of joy, but the deep realization of what only comes to use now and then. Was I mistaken? Was it but a reflection of what I feel in my own heart? I think not. My colonel! But alas, her dear friend Elwell was married, so whether or not there was any steam there, it was always going to end in friendship. I'm not trying to insinuate that Clara had a slam piece, only that she was a complicated woman and probably had complicated feelings for many of the people around her. But amongst all these spicy horseback rides, things weren't going as well as she'd hoped with her in the army. While she had some friends in high places to help her, There were others who just didn't like her bossy bootsing all over the place, demanding things, criticizing. They commandeered her tent to try to get her out of there, and the official army hospitals didn't want her either. Clara was industrious and very driven, but she didn't always play well with others, particularly when those others wouldn't let her set the rules. But she also held people to a very high standard and was upset when they couldn't or wouldn't meet them. She left the South deflated and depressed, again. But then in 1864, she was finally given an official position in the Army, at the Ex-Corps Hospital near Point of Rocks, Virginia, in the employ of Major General Benjamin F. Butler. We will learn more about how Benjamin Beast Butler sucked in some respects in later episodes. 
For now, let's just say he was a man of extremes and not a fan of mouthy southern ladies. But he loved him some Clara and no mistake. Clara was in charge of what was called the Flying Hospital, a traveling tent city that moved with the army. One of her biggest contributions here was in the realm of nutrition. Food was often scarce and a very far cry from nourishing. So Clara busied herself making things like pies, gingerbread, and roast beef. She also managed to find some codfish, which apparently reminded her New England patients so much of home that they burst into tears. Mmm, codfish. But she was worried about her brother, Stephen. For years, he'd lived and made his living in South Carolina. She and the family had begged him to leave the South while he still could, but he refused to abandon everything he'd worked so hard for. Clara hoped that, being closer to him, she could find a way for the Union to rescue him, before it was too late. Instead, the Union arrested him and threw him in a prison cell. Drama! He was treated really badly in Norfolk, Virginia, refused medicine and adequate food, but Clara got Benjamin Butler to save him. Clara to the rescue! Even then, Stephen wasn't doing so well. So in the early months of 1865, Clara went back to Washington to nurse her brother and a young cousin who'd been slowly dying of consumption. She lost them both and was devastated. The war ended in April that year, and Clara was once again at a loss and at an all-time black cloud low about her future. But a very current event pricked her interest. Now that the war was over, soldiers who'd been kept in southern prisons were slowly starting to trickle back into the north. They needed food and clothing and help getting in touch with their relatives. But it was more than that. So many men were still missing. She'd been keeping lists of names and addresses in her diary. The boys she'd met who wanted to make sure she wrote to their families in case of their deaths. So she applied for, and won, the approval of Abraham Lincoln to address the problem of missing soldiers. That permission was one of the last pieces of paper he signed before he was assassinated. And so the Office of Correspondence with Friends of the Missing Men of the United States Army was born and set up in Annapolis, Maryland. A notice went out in the newspaper saying she was the person to write if you had a family member missing. And missives absolutely poured into her makeshift tent. We're talking over 63,000 requests in a time well before keyboards or jelly pens. She had to hire some assistants to help her answer them all. And, you guessed it, the army wasn't paying her. They gave her supplies and help with printing her lists of names, but that's about it. Let's talk about the scope of this project. Some half of the Union men known to have been killed were still unidentified. Some 190,000 unmarked graves. So she did what she could in the realm of info-gathering. She would talk to the soldiers coming off the boats from the south, asking them for any information they had about the men they'd fought with. She got the press to publish her lists and got people to write in if they had any information. In four years, she was able to locate some 22,000 men. A huge number of those were deceased, but at least she could give their families closure. 
That said, a few are actually alive and well. Like this one guy who decided to shack up with a southern lady and start a new life after the war, who wrote to her complaining about his name being splashed about in all the papers. How dare she? She wrote him back, sassily, that stern teacherly finger-wagging. It seems to have been the misfortune of your family to think more of you than you did of them, and probably more than you deserve from the manner in which you treat them. A huge part of that 22,000 located soldiers were thanks to one Dorrance Atwater, who'd been a prisoner at the famously terrible Andersonville Prison. This 18-year-old secretly copied the names, ranks, and cause of death of thousands of Union soldiers while a prisoner, hiding it in his shirt sleeve, knowing that doing so could get him shot. He shared it with Clara, and in 1865, they went down to Andersonville, located and marked nearly 13,000 Union graves. That's 13,000 families that could at least know what happened to their loved one, who knew that they were properly buried. In August, she was asked to raise the U.S. flag at the dedication of Andersonville National Cemetery. Pretty big deal. But then, just like with her school in Bordentown, the gentleman took her project away from her. She was in their way. They could take it from here. Once again, she had a problem. She was out of a project. And, by the way, she'd finally lost her job at the patent office, having not been there in, oh, five or so years. And she'd spent all of her money funding her initiatives. She was now living on less than 50 cents a day. Whoops. Luckily, a few things happened. Congress appropriated $15,000 to reimburse her for expenses associated with her search for missing men. She also testified in front of Congress about her experience at Andersonville. She not only told them about how horrible the conditions had been for the prisoners, but how terrible things were for African Americans in the South. Clara had started to lean much harder towards being an abolitionist. And thus she became the first woman to testify in front of Congress, fighting against oppression. Yes, Clara. But what to do now? She needed money and a project. Her friend and fellow nurse, Frances Gage, was like, Easy, do what I do. Start lecturing. But in the mid-19th century, ladies making speeches was still a little risque. And Clara would rather gouge her own eyes out than speak for a crowd. But in 1866, and for two years, Clara went out on the circuit anyway, giving speeches about what she'd done and seen during the war. And though she still had morbid stage fright, she turned out to be really good at speech-making. She was a big success, thrilling audiences, earning her some $75 to $100 per lecture. She shared platforms with famous people like Frederick Douglass, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Mark Twain. These speeches about her exploits are actually a big part of why she's still so famous today. Girl was nothing if not good at crafting her own public image. And though she was never fully entrenched in the suffrage movement, she did use her fame to try and make some headway for women's rights. She was particularly well-placed to do this because... Unlike most lady lecturers, many of the people in her audience were men. Women were your friends in times of peril, she told the vets in her audience. 
and you should be hers now. Before one such speech, Clara read an ad about it in the local paper. Don't worry, it promised. She's not going to be one of those lady speakers who drone on about rights and such. So she marched up to the stage, did her usual thing for a crowd that was mostly gentlemen veterans, and then delivered the following zinger. You glorify the women who made their way to the front to reach you in your misery and nurse you back to life. You call us angels. Who opened the way for women to go and make it possible? For every woman's hand that ever cooled your fevered brows, staunched your bleeding wounds, gave food to your famished bodies, or water to your parching lips, and called back life to your perishing bodies, you should bless God for Susan B. Anthony. Boom! By 1869, age 47, Clara was completely exhausted. Again. She'd officially closed up the Office of Missing Persons, and her hard living, stress, and lack of sleep were finally catching up. So her doctor advised her to take a break and go to Europe. Eventually, she ended up in Switzerland, which is where she met a Dr. Louis Appia. And he had a question for Miss Barton. Why had the United States not signed up to the Geneva Convention? Why didn't they want to get on board with the Red Cross? She said she didn't know. She'd never heard of it. Well, 32 nations had signed on to the Geneva Convention, which laid out how soldiers were to be treated in times of war. It said that all things related to wounded soldiers had to be neutral, like when you call a timeout and capture the flag. Hospital personnel and nurses should be treated with immunity. The wounded should be taken care of no matter what side they fell on. Medical supplies weren't to be raided or touched. So basically, everything she'd been trying to do out on the battlefield. This Red Cross thing sounded great! Whereas I would have then gone to Budapest and spent several years floating in thermal pools, Clara started feeling listless. Lucky for her, a war was about to start. The Franco-Prussian War, to be exact. Bad health be damned, she was going to the front with the Red Cross. When she did, what she saw hugely impressed her. They had so many supplies. Things were clean. The medical personnel were trained and treated well. And unlike in the Civil War, no soldier could lie there untreated for long. It must have been amazing and kind of upsetting to think of how many lives such a system would have saved in 1861. But she wasn't just handing out supplies. In the city of Strasbourg, Clara saw that many civilian women had been affected by the carnage. People were homeless, demoralized. So instead of just giving them food, she fell back on her old teaching days and set the bar high. She bought cloth, made designs, and gave it to these women to sew and either hand out to the destitute or sell to make some money. She didn't just put clothes on these women's backs— She helped them do it for themselves. But again, Clara collapsed and was out for the count for several years. Apparently nursing in two wars back-to-back will do that to you. She stayed in Europe for a while, then finally went back to America, where she found doctors that did her about as much good as they'd done her brother David back in the day. They told her to take three-hour baths, drink rum, and cherry cordial. That would fix her right up. Eventually, she ended up in a sanitarium, 
or what sounds to me like a really lovely spa. There, she ate healthy things like the original, not nearly as delightful graham cracker, and a newly invented health food called granola. Eventually, she was well enough to take up a new project. About time, because let's be honest, Clara, you've been a real slacker in life thus far. That project would be the American Red Cross. She spent five years working hard, harassing people, and getting journalists and veterans on her side in a time when women weren't often changemakers, especially in the halls of Washington. Clara and her followers campaigned tirelessly, waiting against the tide of people who might have shut her down. And at long last, on May 21, 1881, the American Red Cross was founded. It was a giant, gleaming, monumental achievement and it shaped American relief work forever. But Clara added her own personal twist to the Red Cross, and that was peacetime relief work. It wouldn't just help people in times of war, but also in the face of disaster. In our century, this organization is huge. In 2016, they gave some 4.5 million people help after disasters, vaccinated millions of children, trained some 5 million people in life-saving skills, and provided some 40% of America's total blood supplies. But in 1881, it was just Clara and some buddies making pamphlets explaining what the Red Cross was and passing them out to anyone who would listen. Clara Barton led the Red Cross for 23 years. It would take a very long podcast to detail all the things she did in those decades. So let's highlight some of the most amazing. While the Red Cross was still a relatively small and riches-poor organization, competing with other rising relief agencies, Clara knew she had to work hard to publicize its work. It was only through becoming a national organization that it would be truly effective and people would care. She was great at PR. During a series of floods in the South, Barton hired out a big boat and sailed around delivering things herself much like she used to materialize out of the mist to deliver chloroform and bandages. Her boat appeared out of nowhere, making it seem like the Red Cross was everywhere, showing up just when you needed them. Those are some good optics. In her quest to publicize the American Red Cross, she also accepted an invite to go and talk at an international Red Cross convention in Geneva, becoming the first female diplomatic representative in American history. They were so impressed with what she was doing with peacetime relief that they actually added a new amendment to the Geneva Convention, called the American Amendment. The Clara Amendment would have been cooler, but okay, all right, all right. Though perhaps this wasn't her goal, her presence and influence there was a huge coup for women's suffrage. In the public world still dominated by men, she was speaking in front of large crowds and being listened to making more headway for women's rights than many. Miss Barton has not proceeded to batter down opposing walls with a sledgehammer, one admirer put it, but has quietly and skillfully opened a door with a well-turned key. It will never be closed. She also infused some revolutionary ideas into the relief work of the Red Cross. First was that everyone deserved their help, no matter who they were or where they came from. The second was that the Red Cross shouldn't just swoop in and take over. Their role was not just to aid, 
but to help people help themselves for both the short and the long term. During the terrible Johnstown flood in 1889, she went out of her way to get to the poorer families that many other relief organizations were ignoring. She opened several hotels for homeless people, then turned their management over to local women. In 1893, a terrible hurricane off the coast of South Carolina absolutely devastated the Sea Islands where Clara had once done her nursing. The predominantly African-American communities who lived on those islands were left starving and destitute, a condition that, sadly, a lot of Americans turned a blind eye to. Clara Barton, upset by this, went off to help them, with zero government aid and very little money left in the Red Cross coffers. What she facilitated was astounding. She didn't just supply them with food to get them through the winter. In fact, she would only give them food donations if they planted the seeds she gave them in their gardens, thus ensuring that they'd be able to feed themselves come spring. The harder the local people worked to rebuild, the more rations they got from the Red Cross. This may sound harsh, but the idea was to give the very demoralized locals the power to rebuild their own community, create their own prosperity, in a way that would last long beyond this particular crisis. Take the clothing department she set up, run by local women. They'd take old, donated garments, wash them, then cut and sew them into new garments, which they gave to the very needy in exchange for hot meals. She also encouraged them to plant the specialized cotton that had once made the Sea Islands quite rich and famous. It was hard to find those seeds, so Clara harassed the government. She was such an expert harasser. To obtain it, thus ensuring the Sea Island people would have a long-term and sustainable cash crop. With little support, a lot of skepticism, and a lot of hard work from the local community, she helped get 300,000 people through the winter. Or rather, she helped them get themselves through the winter. She also got involved in foreign aid. In 1891, Russia suffered a terrible crop failure, resulting in some 35 million starving people. America had never really gotten involved with foreign aid to this point and decided that they didn't want to now. So Clara just went ahead and did what she did best, took the hell over. The Red Cross, still not huge at this point, made corn donations that fed 700,000 people for a month. She got involved in other foreign war conflicts too, serving in Cuba, the Bulgarian and Serbian War, and the Spanish-American War, because why not? In many of these conflicts, she was once again in the field, making gruel over campfires and living in a tent, her happy place. Despite the fact that she had to dye her hair to try and hide what was, by now, her quite mature age. Clara was an absolute force of nature, but that didn't always make her a great leader. She saw the Red Cross as her baby, her greatest project, and was very much of the mind that if you want something done right, you'd better do it yourself. Like, do everything yourself. Unfortunately, Clara had never learned to delegate or go with the group's consensus. She was no longer called the angel by her followers, but the queen or the great I am. Other people saw her as dictatorial, 
When people offered her suggestions, she took it as criticism and often reacted badly. When people disagreed with her, she saw it as treachery. Plus, she just didn't want to sit behind a desk. She wanted to be in the field. Basically, Clara just couldn't let go. And so it was that, after a significant amount of pressure from inside the organization and outside of it, she was forced to resign in 1904 at age 73. Her baby had been taken away from her. Poor Clara. Ready to rest after, oh, let's call it five careers? She retired and took up knitting. Just kidding. She wrote a book about her childhood and founded the National First Aid Association of America. She helped create the first aid kit that's probably in your closet somewhere. Girl never was very good at sitting still. Clara Barton died at her home in Glen Echo, Maryland, at the ripe old age of 90, after a very long and extremely busy life. If she had belonged to the other sex, Henry Bellows wrote of her, she would have been a merchant prince, a great general, or a trusted political leader. Note to you, dear Henry, she wasn't a man, but she still managed to do an outrageous amount with her life. She heckled politicians for policy changes. She inspired hundreds of students and then nursed them back to health. She founded an organization that, almost 200 years later, is still one of the most important relief agencies in American history. She did more in her lifetime than most of us could do in five. Clara wasn't an angel. She had flaws, just like the rest of us. But that didn't stop her from striving, always striving, to find her place in the world, and to do what she could do to make it a better place. Others are writing my biography, and let it rest as they elect to make it. I have lived my life well and ill, always less well than I wanted it to be, but it is as it is and as it has been. So small a thing to have had so much about it. But her life wasn't a small thing. It was large and inspiring and full of fascinating multitudes. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Explores. If you liked it, please go subscribe and rate it on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people discover it. For loads of great visuals to go along with this episode, follow me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast. For show notes, including a list of my sources, suggested reading, and more, check out my website, www.TheExplorescPodcast.com. Come find me on Twitter at The Explores Pod and Facebook at The Explores Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my logo and theme music and to the following extra talented humans for their vocal stylings. Nancy Wasner, our intrepid Clara Barton, Stephen Reichel, Avery Downing, Billy Kaplan, and Phil Chevalier. Next time on The Explores... When you think of sex in Victorian America, a hazy image of high necklines and strict codes of conduct descend. But if you squint, you'll see that sex is there. It's everywhere. And prostitutes are all over the Victorian era. 
not just the soiled doves that wander streets in fancy parlors. One used to shame women who step out of their private sphere and dare to work and act on the public stage. We'll step behind the 19th century velvet curtain and explore sex in all its guises. From steamy correspondence and changing courtship rituals to the wartime sex trade and America's early porn. Grab your sheerest stockings and your tiniest corset. Let's go traveling. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 